finishing the six-part series on King Jesus, human Jesus, crucified Jesus, sinless Jesus. And so today we're going to be talking about the imminent return of the King. Did you know that the Lord of, Lord, Lord of the Rings trilogy was based on this event that Jesus is returning? It's true. Anyways, before I get into the message, I just wanted to piggyback what Katie was talking about, and that was Revelation 19 that she was reading, with the many diadems that are on Jesus' head. Basically what that means is a diadem was a royal um, bestowment that you put on a king, and um, he has many diadems. However, this is the cool part about Jesus' diadems. It says in Song of Songs 3.11, it's encouraging the daughters of Jerusalem. It says, Go look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Basically, what's that saying? Of the many um, thrones and the crowns that Jesus wears, the one that makes his heart the gladdest is the crown with which we crown him with our love. And the reason that makes sense is because Jesus had everything even before he became a man. But he wanted the love of humans. He wanted human voluntary love. So it says in Song of Songs 3.11, it says, On the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart, when you put your love on Jesus' life, on his head, it makes his heart abundantly glad, and it says it ravishes him. So praise the Lord. That's just a little side note. Now to get to the good stuff. So we're going to start in Matthew 24 and then just kind of move our way through uh, the Scriptures. So we're going to start um, Matthew 24 where the disciples come to Jesus. It's right at the beginning of the chapter. And it's the last week of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus is um, nearing His death. He knows it. The disciples are rather unaware of it, but um, they still... Holy Spirit inspired to ask this question to Jesus. And they come to him and they ask him a great question. And they say, Jesus, you see all these... They, said, they came to Jesus and they said, um, you know, tell us when will we see these, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age. So here the disciples present Jesus with one of the most important and primary questions that the Christian um, individual is left with. And they want to know when he's coming back. They want to know what will be the consummation of humanity and essentially when will he turn everything around. So the Jewish culture um, was essentially awaiting the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning a Davidic king. And basically what that means is they were waiting for the offspring of David to come forth and make everything right, overturn the Roman government, and you know basically restore the kingdom that David had set up back in you know the early stages of Israel's history. So that's what they were waiting for. I mean, the Jewish culture had this. They fixed their eyes on it, and they were waiting for it. And we read this in Jeremiah 33, where Jeremiah prophesies about this, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So they were awaiting righteousness. And so tonight, um, we're g- I'm going to give kind of a bird's eye overview, that's what I like to call it, of the return of Jesus. Unfortunately, in a 30-minute message, we don't have time to unpack all of the beauty of this man's return. It's an exhaustive uh, study. So, I mean, tonight we're going to primarily focus on the military takeover of Jesus over the kingdom of darkness. 
So there's actually going to be a military takeover that Jesus will be the king. He will have servants. He will have a bride. He will have everything a king has, and he will overpower physically and righteously and, you know, all those things that come with the kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. Like, it is going to happen, as we read in Revelation 19 from Katie this morning, or this, the beginning of this message. So another just little side note that there's actually going to be an offspring from David, which is Jesus, taking over the kingdom. This is also why Matthew, a lot of us, we wonder, like, Matthew, out of all the things he could have written about in his gospel, starts with the first 16 verses on the genealogy of Jesus. And all of us Gentiles are like, I really don't care, whatever, yada, 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 get to where you're born and died on the cross and sweet. But to the Jews, this was vital. And the Jews would have never accepted Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Messiah had Matthew not rightly unpacked unpacked the reality that he is, in fact, by birth, the offspring of David. So it's important that we realize that and we realize he really is the fulfillment of the Davidic prophecy. He really is coming back and he really is going to injustice and righteousness overpower every kingdom on this earth and establish his government till there's no end of it. Amen. So I'll just touch on this for a really brief time. Um, the, the rapture of the church, there's a lot of debate about this, so I just wanted to t- mention this briefly. It's important to realize that your theology of the rapture isn't a salvation issue. You're not going to go to heaven based on whether or not you believe the rapture is pre-tribulation or post-tribulation. So don't get all bound up in all that debate and that feisty spirit. It's, you know, it's important to have conviction. But um, I, do, I did just want to establish that this message is in the context that it's a post-tribulation, that the rapture is coming after the tribulation. Um, I believe that it's important that we do get a right theology of the rapture because oftentimes what I do see happen is a haphazard approach towards the return of Jesus. And we're like, oh, well, we're not going to be here anyways, so why does it really matter? I personally don't adhere to that theology. Um, I'm only going to unpack one scripture. There's many scriptures from both sides of the argument, but I believe in Mark we have a pretty clear example of this. It says in Mark 13, 24, It says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So I personally believe the Bible does make a clear distinction that the rapture does come after tribulation. The other big um, reason I, I do adhere to that personally is because if uh, we adopt the theology that the rapture comes before um, Jesus has returned, then essentially we're set with the, um, with the battle of Jesus having two returns. And I personally don't believe that, it's, that the Bible at all teaches that. I believe that the Bible teaches that the return of Jesus and the rapture of the saints is a simultaneous single event. So we'll leave it at that. If you have more questions, certainly ask. But for the sake of the message tonight, that's where we're going to leave that issue, though it has much debate. So, with the military takeover of the kingdom of darkness, um, we read in Scripture that before the Lord returns, He will intentionally set the stage and orchestrate a scenario that only the King of Kings will have the ability, power, and glory to win. 
So basically what's that, what that means is Jesus is going to so orchestrate a scenario for his return that it will undoubtedly like make us understand that, like Paul said, this man is God of, of creation. He is the great I am. He is Yahweh. And he's the man. Basically, that, that's what is going on. So Jesus has purposed it in his heart that every knee will bow, every tongue confess, no matter whether or not you're saved or not, you will bow to the name of Jesus. The Bible says it's going to happen. Paul declares it in Philippians 2. And Jesus will do this for his namesake. And we read in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, and I'm just going to unpack an Old Testament story that Isaiah says will be a picturesque of Jesus' return. It's a story you're probably familiar with. But tonight we're going to further unpack it in the context of Jesus' return. So Isaiah says in chapter 9, verses 4 through 7, he says, For the yoke of his burden, his burden is the, the enemy, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. So here Isaiah is declaring one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, and this is the same chapter that we read, For unto us a child is born. His name is Emmanuel, Everlasting Father, you know, Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, etc. But interestingly, he says in the beginning of this chapter that he will return as on the day of Midian. So essentially we are posed with the question, what happened on the day of Midian that Jesus will so liken his return to that day? So, fortunately, the writer of Judges tells us what happened. Praise the Lord. So we read in the book of Judges, chapter 7 and 8, the story of a man named Gideon. Many of you are probably familiar with this man. But Gideon was a righteous man who served the Lord, and he um, was a warrior. Gideon was a picturesque warrior of that time of Israel's history. And so the Lord says to Gideon in chapter 7, verse 2, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Well, if we read that story, we read that Gideon at that time had thirty-five, had 32,000 men. That's the army that he had with him in that time to defend the nation of Israel. 32,000 men. The Midianites had 135,000. So the Lord comes to Midian in chapter 7 and he says, Your 32,000 men are far too many for me to give you your enemy. So what I need you to do is minimize your army. So he goes to Midian in chapters 3, verses 4. He says, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the men returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. So he more than cuts in half his forces. These men are already trembling. They're already afraid. And they know that they're being asked to go into a battle against 135,000 well-trained, fabulous warriors that have been basically warriors since death, since, since birth. So here Midian has now cut his army in more than half. He has 10,000 men. 22,000 of them have gone home, and they're fearful and trembling. So it's important to realize that in the last days there will be fear and trembling. It's a natural response I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm going to be one of the 10,000 men that stood there and said, hip, hip, hooray, I'm going to go with you till the end. But I believe that Jesus can get me there. But the point is, is that there will be great fear and great trembling in the last days as we see that Isaiah says it will be as on the day of Midian 
And we read in Judges 7 that over half of the people, over half of the self-professing warriors of Israel that day left the scene and said, forget about it. I'm going home and I'll take my chances with my family. So we see that, however, we still see that there was more men than, than the Lord needed to proclaim his namesake. So he says in chapter, in verse, let's see here. I didn't write it down. But basically he presents this 10,000 men with a scenario and he says, okay, you 10,000 men, go to the river and drink water. And so he's like, and he tells Gideon, the men who get on their hands and knees and lap the water like a dog, send those men home. But the one who picked the, the water up with their hands, those are the ones I'm going to send you into the Midianites to fight with. And after he does that, take a guess how many people he ended up with. 300 people. 300 people against 135,000 well-trained barbaric soldiers of Midian. And that's what the Lord said to do with Gideon. And he said, these are the people I'm going to deliver the hands of Midian into you. And he says in 7-7, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, go every man to his home. So essentially we are reading in this story that Jesus does not care about numbers. They mean absolutely nothing to him. Jesus will conquer the kingdom of darkness with absolutely nobody if he needs to. But he desires a willing heart. He desires a bride who says, come, Lord Jesus, come. And that's what he's looking for. And that is the gladness of his heart. Is when you say come, he comes and he does what only he can do. So we see that, again, the Lord did not need numbers, but he needed what he said in Revelations 22. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So in one verse, we see the word come four times. So Jesus is committed to a bride that says, Come Holy Spirit, partners with what His Spirit is doing, and is committed to being faithful to Him until death and no questions asked. Amen. So... We see that again what is picturesque of this story is it says in the end of chapter 7 that Gideon runs, he's inspired by a dream. The Lord gives a dream to his enemies that basically prophesies that Israel is going to take you over today. And then Gideon calls his 300 men after he's strengthened by this, by this dream. And with the blowing of a trumpet, these 300 men blow this trumpet, terrify the enemy so they start slaying each other. And then they end up killing 120,000 men before the other 15,000 scurry in fear. So that's what happened in the day of Gideon, that the Lord is committed to returning and making his faith, making his return unto that day. So we see, I just wrote down here, Gideon, a real man, is instructed um, to the point where there was nothing Israel could say, but Jesus did this. That Jesus took us into a camp of 135,000 people and we slaughtered him. We absolutely destroyed him, and there was no doubt that Jesus and the Father took care of us today. So we see that Jesus is committed to restoring his great name in his return. And Ezekiel says the same thing in chapter 36. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake or the house of Israel that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you come, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And when you have professed among them, 
and which you have professed among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So we see that Jesus is really going to do and unfold the same type of scenario that we saw him do with Gideon in the book of Judges. And so as we we become familiar with these stories, it's important that we realize and not become offended when Jesus starts to set the stage for this return because it's going to be intense. And I'll just give you a simple practical approach to it. There, We heard from Ken Krause back in November. He said that nations like Germany and nations in Europe are already declaring that in a short period of time, maybe 10 to 20 years, they will predominantly be Islamic nations. So we're basically getting to the point in humanity where Christianity and Islam have no other place to go but dead on like 200 mile an hour freight trains. And that's where we're going. And the Islamic nation, if anybody like studies their history, far outnumbers the Christian nation. I mean, they like have a birth rate of like 15 people a household. And it's true. So like you see these things starting to unpack and Jesus is raising up the Islamic nation to oppose his, his rulership and his government so that when he returns, he will slay every, every tongue, every tribe, and every nation that opposes his reign and his lordship over creation. So I say that only to encourage us and exhort us that as these things happen and as Jesus shakes things that can be shaken and he shakes the infrastructures of governments, of the economy, we see the stock, the stock market right now is as volatile as you know the lightning storm outside right now. I mean, it's a mess. So we see Jesus shaking these things and we have to realize like my job is to say come. My job isn't to be afraid, isn't to be afraid. It's not to be, you know, questioning your leadership. Your leadership is perfect. And you are the king. I am the bond servant. So come Holy Spirit. Amen. So Jesus will orchestrate such a scenario that there will absolutely be no doubt that he is God and that he is the great I am. And fortunately, Zechariah, as he's prophesying about the Lord's return, also gives us an insight into what Jesus is going to do to, um, you know, declare his, his majesty and his, you know, basically sovereignty over creation. We read in Zechariah 14, he says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So we read a couple other times. Joel the prophet, he also says this. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, um, declaring what the Lord will do. He says, I will, do, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So there's a lot of Old Testament prophecy about what is going to happen on the earth in that day. And we read that Jesus will essentially take every single nation in the world that exists in that day and he will push them against the rulership of Jerusalem and Israel. And so essentially it's no joke why we see so much attention around the nation of Israel right now in the world because this is Jesus' plan. His plan we're starting to see unfold right now. All of the chaos in the Middle East right now that's happening is prophetic of this plan. Because you see the Muslim brotherhoods and the Islamic brotherhoods taking over nations like Egypt, Iran, Syria, you know, you name it. There was like 12 of them that have been going on in this whole year. And they're basically what is happening is they're overturning the dictatorial nation, nation leaders and they're wanting to um, enforce 
Islamic governance into those nations and everything that those Islamic governance have in, have in common is they hate Israel. Every one of them hates Israel. They want nothing to do with it. And they believe that that land is theirs and God says it's mine. So they're fighting over this tiny little piece of land in the Middle East and the Lord is laughing at them the whole time. Like it says in Psalm 2, that the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs at the kings of the nations who in some way think that they're going to oppose the rulership of Yahweh. Okay? So that is what's happening. We see it happening before our very eyes and we're living in extremely exciting times right now because we're seeing Jesus' strategy to take over the earth unfolding right before us. So, just a little bit of more practicality. Um, when the, the prophecies say that, it's not necessarily saying that the entire population on the earth is going to oppose um, Jerusalem. All it's saying is that you know, Zechariah 14, 16 says that some of the nations will be left, but the Lord is basically speaking about the governments of the earth and the military captains, the leaders, the personnel, all representing these nations that hate Israel will gather together for the Armageddon campaign and they will oppose Jesus Christ. And at this time, it's important to realize too that Israel will have no military budget, they will have no infrastructure, they will have no weapons of warfare, and they will have basically gotten to the point of Daniel 9.27 where it says that they have bought into the lies of the Antichrist who has offered them a false peace and a false safety. And we read that in scriptures that while you are crying peace and safety, the judgment of the Lord is coming. Paul encourages us in that in 1 Thessalonians. So this will be no small number. It will be likened unto the day of Midian, 135,000 verses 300. And Jesus is then going to come as their king and dominate. So we see in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord, we're talking about Jesus, shall execute kings in that day. In the day of his wrath, he shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. And he shall execute the heads of many countries. So Jesus will literally take a sword from his mouth and he will cut people's heads off. And that's intense. I mean, that's intense. When you read about the baby in the manger who had no room in the inn, is all of a sudden going to descend from heaven with burning eyes of fire and a robe dipped in blood that's white, and then he's going to dominate kings of the world like real human beings. He is going to slay. So it's important that we get acquainted with this reality of Jesus and we allow these truths just to kind of, to descend our heart. and Essentially, we just allow the fear of the Lord to strike our hearts because it's going to happen, and I'd rather be on that side than the other side. I'll sign up for this program over here. Whatever it takes, Lord, you can have my money, you can have my bank account, you can have my relationships, my family. I'll just stay on your side and let you kill the rest of the world and as opposed to me opposing your government that the Bible says has no end. So um, just lastly here, and then we'll kind of move into ministry. I know we're, we're moving quickly here. But, but yeah, what God does in that day when he bestows his sovereignty and his majesty and his leadership will impact how he governs the earth for the next 1,000 years. And we read in Revelation 20 that Jesus has a millennial reign. And basically what that means is he will overturn all of the nations of this world and then he will instill his government on the earth. And he will do it over the course of 1,000 years. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that after he conquers death, after he establishes that government, he will hand the kingdom over to his father. So Jesus will get out of the way and say, all right, Father, as it was in Eden, you're the man now. I did my job. I'll go back to being your son. Not that I'm not your son now, but 
right now the Lord has entrusted Jesus with the kingdom of kingdoms of this earth. After Jesus establishes that millennial reign, it's Paul says in Corinthians 15, he hands it back to the Father. So what Jesus does during the Armageddon campaign will have dramatic impact on how he governs and basically just the social impact that it will have on the people of that day. And the people of the millennial reign will remember Jesus' power, his wisdom, his zealous love, his unrelenting justice, and essentially they will know never to rebel against this man ever again. Like, this man owns me. So it's important that, again, we just realize that Jesus, the Jesus who's portrayed in the Armageddon campaign is not contrary to his personality of love and tenderness as he delivers those oppressed by, by darkness. And the best example we have of this is basically the Exodus that we read in, in, um, in the book of Exodus. Essentially, this is the most prophetic picture that we have of Jesus' return. And his return isn't as much of, um, well, I guess I'll put it this way. Like His return is as much about saving the just and the righteous as much as it is about destroying the wicked. So this concept isn't to like fill you with a bunch of fear and like give you, keep you running and like sitting on pins and needles. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we don't have to sit here and fret and panic at night and have sleepless evenings because, Jesus, you're going to destroy the nations. If you're not with Jesus, then it's a different story. But if you're a self-professing Christian and you're saved by grace through faith, it doesn't have to be like that. And we see that in Exodus, as Jesus threw darkness on the entire nation of Egypt, there was light with, for the people of Israel. So there was a dramatic distinction. And Jesus will do the same thing. He will create a dramatic distinction in the tribulation. These are the people against me. These are the people for me. And the nations will know. The nations will know that I'm against Jesus, etc., etc. So, David explains in Psalm 2 that he describes the safety of drawing close to the Lord in intimacy and awe in the end, in the end, of, in the end time. So he says in Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 is all about the return of the Lord. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So he's talking about rejoicing. So we're rejoicing as we're fearing the Lord. So it talks about there's peace and there's joy and there's you know just hope as we understand the power of Jesus Christ. He says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled by but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. And I say this all the time, but the word blessed means happy. So we are happy as we're trusting in Jesus. We're joyful. We're awaiting the blessed hope of our King Jesus. And that's essentially what the Bible talks about. The return of Jesus is our blessed hope. And it's our peace and it's our safety. And while all the nonsense and all the chaos is going on around us and we're aware and we're waiting the days of Jesus' return, we're resting on the hope that Jesus is coming back. And Titus says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's good news. That is great news. That Jesus Christ is returning. He's appearing for the glory of our great God. And He is our blessed hope. And the Bible says that we can wait on that. And we can be at peace with those things. So tonight I just want us to get a vision 
for his return and his restoration of all things and let it open up our hearts to be consumed with the knowledge of God that these things and these truths about what Jesus is going to do as a real man we learned about his humanity we learned about you know his sinlessness he will do this as a real man as a real king in the flesh that we are awakened to our blessed hope and we just let this come and resonate and bring us peace in this life and so um the apostle Paul exhorts us with this reality that Christ's return essentially drives out anxiety. And for a person, for me personally, who struggles with anxiety, I tell you that the blessed hope of the return of Jesus, if it can overpower the fear of anxiety, it's a powerful thing. Because anxiety, if anybody in you struggles with it, knows how powerful that can be. So Paul exhorts us in Philippians 4, 5, that the peace of God that passes understanding is in the context of Jesus' return. He says in Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is at hand. Jesus Christ is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I want us to get a vision for this tonight. I want us as a community and as a people to just get a vision that Jesus is Christ's return can drive out the anxiety, the sleepless nights. The last time I preached, I saw many in here struggled with, with night terrors, with nightmares, with things that they struggle with. But as we fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, these things drive out anxiety. These things overpower the fear of whatever you may be struggling with. It says perfect love casts out fear. So we're just going to have the worship team come up here and um, just lead us in a song. And then just a few more things before we just transition into ministry. Yeah. Yeah. Just I think the last point here that when we move before we move into ministry, just to further touch on kind of the reality that the bridegroom of Jesus as the bridegroom and the king and the judge cannot be separated. Um, it's important that the severity of God's judgment upon the wicked is in direct relationship to the intensity of Jesus' burning love for humanity. And basically what that, what that means is that Jesus, we read again in Psalm 2, was promised by the Father the nations as his inheritance. It says, ask of me and I will give you the nations. That is the Father talking to Jesus saying, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So he has a burning, zealous love for the nations of this world. And what he, and he is, will stop at nothing to get that. So his love is fueling this end time scenario. And he's like, I love you too much to let you stay in this wickedness long enough. So I'll hand it over to you guys. Um, First Thessalonians, I've always loved this passage uh, in chapter 4. First time I heard it was back in California. And it was after a tragedy. We had lost a, a child and... I heard this verse being read by a small, young child. And it gave me so much comfort because this is what it says. And she, she had read it. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. With, she just read it with passion. This little five-year-old. With a loud com, uh, command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. And 
Hallelujah. I said, Hallelujah. And we want to play this ram's horn one more time, David, don't we? Yes, Karen, we do. Come on. Come on. And my brothers used to play the trumpet and trombone, and I love brass instruments, but there's something about the ram's horn. Well, you know, it's in the Bible. And I believe that's what we're going to hear. And, of course, we can't play it the way we will hear it someday. But we shouted, and we, we, we did play it then. But I just love this, and I just asked. When I said he, what he was going to talk about, I said, Well, where are the trumpets? He said, Do you want to play it? And I said, Yes. So, hallelujah. And you just praise the Lord when we play this. Get Now it's a three twelve three, and I don't know why, but you can shout, you can praise, you can do whatever you like to, okay? <laughs> <laughs> 